Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, Judges chapter 6 continued. Judges 6 began with some chilling but by now pretty familiar words to us. But the people did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. Thus we were introduced to the fifth in the series of stories, the fifth cycle, about Israel's stubborn pattern of returning to idol worship after they had been delivered from the oppression of an enemy and that was caused by their idol worship. And this tendency of Israel towards Worshipping Baal had become so strong in Israel that even Gideon, that distinguished hero of God, eventually would yield to, the, to this temptation himself. Okay? And for that reason, his family and clan would later be visited with calamity and misfortune for their depravities. Now today's lesson on Judges 6 is just... One sobering sermon after another. It's unavoidable because it just bursts out of these pages of God's Word as He pleads with His people to open their ears and hearts to Him and not to be as hard soil that even gentle rain cannot penetrate. The first ten verses that we studied last time explained that after 40 years of rest against foreign oppressors, Israel went right back to their old ways, worshipped the Canaanite gods, and then the Lord responded by drawing nomadic marauders from the east and from the south to plunder Israel's food supply. And these invaders did this for seven years, always coming at the harvest season. The marauders are identified as Midian, which would have been the head of a coalition, along with Amalek, and then some unnamed smaller bands of robbers called Children of the East. Their behavior was metaphorically described as that of locusts, that they would descend in countless numbers from seemingly nowhere upon the Hebrews in Canaan and then stay till they had collected all the food they could eat and carry away. But this time, in this story, they even destroyed what they couldn't haul off with them. Probably as a punishment for Israel not being as forthcoming with everything that they had expected to get from them. Israel was depressed. It was feeling hopeless They lost all will to resist these descendants of Ishmael who came riding upon these fearsome beasts called camels. Now, whether it was from remembering the earlier generations when their ancestors would sin and be punished by conquerors and find themselves in a similarly deplorable state, or whether it was more of a knee-jerk reaction to the condition of being so deep in a a pit of despair, Israel finally cried out to Jehovah to help them. You know, I'm sad to think 
that the human way of exhausting all other possibilities before finally and reluctantly submitting to God is probably generally how it's always been among, among mankind. For sure, it's that way in our day, even among those of us who know him. Now, I'd like to remind you of a 50-cent word that I taught you a few weeks ago. Syncretism. And syncretism is the act of blending. It's what happens when one culture assimilates into another. Israel was blending their ways and their worship with that of the Canaanites. And at its core was the blending of Yehovah with the Baals. It wasn't done with some kind of official council meeting that resulted in a well-defined decision. It wasn't something that the leaders of the twelve tribes ordered ordered their people to do. Rather, slowly, almost imperceptibly, it just kind of happened. We all kind of understand that, don't we? A compromise here, an attempt to show respect to another's religion there. Marriage between a lovely Hebrew girl and a nice Canaanite boy. The forming of a friendly and prosperous business relationship with a Baal worshiper. That's how it happened. Typically, no Hebrew set out to offend Yehovah and submit to Baal and Ashtoreth, but they all wanted peace. They wanted good relations with their neighbors, so it meant tolerance for all gods that were so very valued by each culture. You know, Canaanites weren't horrible people. They weren't barbarians and murderers. Canaanites and Hebrews were very much alike, both coming from Mesopotamian roots. They were farmers, herders, craftsmen, merchants. Their societies were much more complementary than contrasting. Biblically speaking, you know, 40 years of time is just a hiccup in history. But it's more than enough time for men to forget very recent lessons and to take a long series of baby steps that result in substantial changes that don't seem so substantial because they're so gradual in coming. You know, I can recall when I was in high school that's amazing, isn't it? I can recall when I was in high school. that I had no idea what homosexuality was. I didn't. It was a a term you could have said to me and I had no clue. I didn't know what it meant. Until I went into the military, I was completely ignorant that such a thing even existed. I remember that years later when the the out-of-the-closet movement, if you're old enough to remember that, of the gays began that it was that they had no interest in changing society, changing anyone, in advocating their lifestyle. Rather, they said, they just wanted to be left alone and not treated as criminals. Remember that? The wise men of that day fought against it. 
They warned once it was considered something to be allowed and left as but a legitimate personal choice that it was a, just a human right, even if it was wrong, that in no time it would spread like a malignant tumor. Today it's taught in our schools and commended as a perfectly legitimate way of life. Children in our schools are required to see same-sex couples as no different than traditional marriage between a man and a woman. One of our political parties holds it up as part of its platform and declares what a wonderful and lovely thing it is. New terms like homophobe have been created to describe anyone who would dare to say that homosexuality is inherently wrong. Those evangelical Christians who continue to advocate against it, such as me, are seen as ignorant, small-minded, backward, even mean. And thus we have a large and growing homosexual church. We have whole industries that have sprung up to serve the gay and lesbian community and now in many western nations to speak out against it means going to jail and then a re-education process before you're allowed to re-enter society this is syncretism this is what happened to Israel okay. syncretism has happened and is happening as I speak to the body of believers. For centuries, we have slowly but surely integrated and adopted pagan worship practices and traditions that in Christianity's infancy were considered outlandish abominations and were thoroughly rejected. But with the passing of time, a compromise here, a hope to appeal to seekers in order to expand our numbers there, these practices have become a regular part of us for so long that they're considered not only normal but necessary, desired. You know, most Christians have no idea where some of these cherished traditions have even come from. What they meant in their original, why they were ever introduced... And frankly, most don't want to know. Because it might mean being faced with some unpopular, if not pretty drastic, changes in our lives and our congregations and especially our doctrines. It would mean that things we have really come to enjoy and are very comfortable with might get challenged. This is called religious syncretism. I'm telling you all of this so that you can picture what was going on at the time of the judges. Because we're reliving that same time and we're doing essentially the same thing. Let's read another portion of Judges today. Start, we're going to start with uh, 6 verse 11 and read till 24. We're going to cover that today. That's page 277 in your complete Jewish Bible. Then the angel of Adonai came and sat under the pistachio tree in Ophrah that belonged to Yoash the Aviesri. 
His son Gidon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from Midian. The angel of Adonai appeared to him and said to him, You valiant hero, Adonai is with you. Excuse me, sir, answered Gideon. But if Adonai is with us, then why is all this happening to us? Where are all his miracles that our ancestors told us about when they said, Didn't I bring us up from Egypt? For now Adonai has abandoned us. He has handed us over to Midian. Adonai turned to him and said, Go in this strength of yours and save Israel from the hands of Midian. Haven't I sent you? But Gideon answered him, Forgive me, my lord, but with what am I to save Israel? Why, my family is the poorest in Manasseh. I'm the youngest person in my father's household. And Adonai said to him, Because I will be with you, you will strike down Midian as easily as if it were just one man. And Gideon replied, If indeed you favor me, um, would you mind giving me a sign that it's really you talking with me? Please don't leave until I go and return with a gift and present it to you. And he replied, I will wait till you come back. Gideon went. He cooked a young goat, made matzah from a bushel of flour. He put the meat in a basket, the broth in a pot, brought them out to him under the pistachio tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the matzah, lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. Gideon did so. Then the angel of Adonai reached out with the stick he was holding, touched the meat and the matzah, and fire shot up out of the rock and burned up the meat and matzah. Then the angel of Adonai disappeared before his eyes. Gideon realized that he was the angel of Adonai and said, Oh no, my lord Adonai, because I've seen the angel of Adonai face to face. But Adonai reassured him, Shalom to you, don't be afraid, you won't die. Then Gideon built an altar there to Adonai and called it Adonai Shalom. And to this day it remains in Ophrah of the Aviesri. God begins the process of deliverance of his people in verse 11. And it begins with the Malach Yehoveh, the angel of the Lord where he presents himself to Gideon under some kind of a tree. Depending on your Bible, it will say oak, pistachio, terebinth. The place is called Ophrah. And some of you have been to Israel with me and have visited a place in the so-called West Bank territories called Ophrah. This is not the same place. The Ophrah we visited was in Benjamin's former territory. Remember, I've told you, there's a lot of names, uh, same names for places all throughout Israel. This is another case. This one is more fully described here in Judges as being Ophrah that belonged to Yoash the Aviesri. Okay. In other words, this particular Ophrah, village of Ophrah, was located in the territory of western Manesha. And Yoash, the clan, the clan of Aviesri, uh, uh, rather Aviesir, owned the village of Ophrah, which was 
part of the tribe of Manasseh. Now, theologically speaking, this section of Judges can be quite a help to discovering just who this angel of the Lord actually is. Although, I can tell you that Judaism would disagree with the rather straightforward evidence and conclusion. And frankly, the result of studying this once again requires us to re-examine the structure of the rather standard Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And I say structure of the doctrine because in the main I think it's completely correct. So don't get concerned. But the rigid requirement that any possible physical manifestation of God must be a pre-incarnate Jesus is very questionable. Okay. Before we go there, let's get our bearings. This Malach Yehovah is not the prophet that God was speaking of back in verse 7. The angel of the Lord is not the same as this unnamed prophet who God sent to the people of Israel to explain to them why they were in this oppressed condition. And it is summed up in verse 10 when the prophet, who is simply delivering a message from God verbatim, says, but you paid no attention to what I, God, said. So sometime after the prophet came and chastised the people of Israel, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and spoke only to him. Not to the people in general, not to the other leaders of Israel. Now, Gideon was the son of a man named Yoash. Right? And when the angel of the Lord showed up, the scene is of Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. Now that small statement tells us a couple of important things. First, this event happened in the summertime. Right, around what we would call June. Because that's the general time of the wheat harvest. Another thing it tells us is that something is drastically awry. Because we have Gideon using a wine press to thresh wheat. Now, wheat's normally threshed by being laid out on a well-tamped or slightly elevated piece of ground on a large section maybe of rock outcropping that's been kind of flattened so that the wheat is, is tamped upon so as the wheat is tamped upon the breeze blows away the chafe okay. further even for a relatively small family it takes a lot of wheat stalks to be threshed to obtain a useful amount of wheat kernels therefore an animal preferably an ox is usually used to pull a, a log or a sled over the wheat in order to separate the heads of wheat from the stalks in mass. But here we have a situation whereby a wine press is being used for threshing. Therefore, only a very small amount of wheat could be processed at one time, thus making it an arduous proposition to extract enough wheat for sufficient bread for a single family. Okay. An ancient wine press was basically a hole in a rock where grapes were placed. And then someone would either trample on the grapes in their bare feet or use something like a blunt staff to squash the grapes for their juice. And then typically that rock receptacle was very slightly slanted so that the, as 
the process proceeded, gravity would cause the juice to run down towards another depression in the rock where it would pool. Thus what we have is that not only is wheat in short supply due to the marauders from the east, but that threshing had to be improvised in a way that didn't draw the watchful gaze of those human locusts. Well, the angel of the Lord speaks and is said to have come and sat under a terebinth or an oak or a pistachio tree. And the, the kind of tree is unimportant, but what is important is how the angel of the Lord begins that conversation. He calls Gideon, you valiant hero. And then he proceeds to tell Gideon that the Lord is with him. Nothing in this scene would illustrate Gideon as anything but a rather typical member of a passive and oppressed population. So why this accolade of being a valiant hero? I'm sure it stunned Gideon as well. This was a prophetic statement of what Gideon was about to become. Or in another respect, it was who Gideon, follow me, already was, but it couldn't be manifest until the Lord intervened. It was an honest expression of how God viewed Gideon as opposed to how Gideon viewed himself. You know, one of the great realities of Jehovah and those who follow him is that he sees us for who he made us to be. Not necessarily how we've behaved up to this point in our lives. I spent, I spent the major portion of my career in boardrooms and flying around the U.S. and, and Europe running high-tech businesses. I was a pretty run-of-the-mill businessman, simply trying to do my job and create wealth for the corporation while creating a prosperous and comfortable life for my family. If anyone asked me who I was, I said, a businessman. That's how I saw myself. Interestingly, it was my wife who saw me as something else. She would tell me rather often, in fact, about how I ought to be a teacher. And I'd laugh at that every time she said it. Nothing could have been further from my mind or interest. But in my 40s, something happened. I lost interest in being a businessman. But I didn't know what I had to do with the rest of my life. You know, a man's identity, ladies, is all wrapped up in what he does. If you ask a man who he is, he'll usually tell you what he does for a living. But that is in no way how God sees us. The Lord had to, in his time, let me know that my wife just might have been right. In his eyes, I was a teacher. That's how he made me, regardless of what I thought about it. My purpose would become as a teacher of his word to his people. I could not have imagined it. Well, here in Judges 6.12, the man who was hiding from the nomads, who were plundering his 
family and all of their goods, the man who was merely surviving and was to himself nothing special was to God a valiant hero. And he would courageously lead his people into battle. It just hadn't happened yet. My dear friends, the Lord sees you in light of your role in the kingdom of heaven. And every one of those roles is glorious and important. Every one. He sees you for the wondrous way in which He made you. And for who you really are. If you'll trust Him enough to believe Him. Gideon was thinking of himself as anything but a valiant hero. Essentially, what was spoken to Gideon was a promise from God. And believe me, there's a promise there waiting for every one of you. The Lord apparently appeared as a traveler to Gideon in much the same way as he did to Abraham about 800 years earlier. Although he wasn't specifically called the angel of the Lord in that instance. Some rabbis say that Malach Yehoveh did not appear as a heavenly angel to Gideon because angels are always spoken of in the scriptures as either flying or floating in the air or the heavens or they're standing erect, never sitting. Further, Gideon didn't seem all that taken by this person. The nearly universal reaction to the appearance of an angel is for the viewer to fall to pieces in fright and in awe. In any case, this is a visible revelation of Jehovah in human, not angelic form. And besides giving a promise to Gideon that he is a valiant hero, this mysterious traveler also tells Gideon that Jehovah is with him. Now, let me pause just momentarily to explain that any time I tell you that the text says Yehovah, even though you may not see it in your Bibles, I mean that literally. It's not my speculation or opinion. 99% of the time, where in our Bibles it says Lord or God, or is in the complete Jewish Bible, Adonai, in the original it says yud heh God's formal name is first revealed to Moses. See, this is key. Because dealing with the Lord by His name makes the situation very personal. Yet it also makes it clear that in the ancient world mindset of multiple gods, the God that is speaking here is named Yehovah, and Yehovah is the God of Israel. Sadly, Israel seemed to forget that on a regular basis. Gideon says to the divine traveler, Well, if what you say is true, that God is with him, then why is all this terrible oppression happening to us? You see, when the angel of the Lord said that God is with you, to Gideon, Gideon took it as a reference to God being present with Israel, not with him individually. He didn't understand that the Lord had come to strengthen and empower Gideon as an individual in order to deliver Israel. Then Gideon says, So, where are all the miracles 
that our ancestors experienced when God brought them up out of Egypt. Instead, Jehovah's gone. He's, you've allowed us to become servants of Midian. So where are all the miracles? Isn't that something we probably all wondered in our private thoughts from time to time? Where are all the miracles? Why, when a growing part of the world, and even our own American society, openly shuns even the concept of God, why doesn't he show up and humiliate his doubters in some spectacular way, like in times of old? How come the Bible is simply loaded with dazzling appearances of angels, the parting of waters, entire wicked cities being leveled, an enemy army of 180,000 men suddenly and inexplicably dying, men like Samson being given superhuman abilities to carry out God's will, other men simply speaking and causing the blind to see and the lame to walk. Gideon looked around him and he asked a very reasonable question. Well, if God's here among us, how is it that we're so downtrodden under the thumb of foreigners? If Jehovah is God and is present, why do foreigners mock him and get away with it? Gideon more or less answered his own question. No, God isn't here with us. He has abandoned us. And you know, in some ways, what Gideon was thinking was accurate. He had it right. Even though God was still there, he indeed had turned his holy back on Israel and turned them over to Midian for punishment. Where Gideon was wrong was that he blamed God for it. Not Israel, which is where the blame lay. You see, Judges 6 shows us that only the generations where obedience and a singular faithfulness to the Father are actively practiced that the miracles abound. We can look around us and know that we have a problem today between the Lord and His followers. Thus the miracles and the power are in pretty short supply. This is something that traditional Christianity rails at. Because it too often equates obedience with something it calls legalism. Obey a law of God, that's legalism, and that's bad. In Gideon's day, God's people did not stop believing in Jehovah. They just stopped being obedient. They became unfaithful by merely adding other gods to their lives. Listen to a passage you've all heard before, but perhaps you haven't heard it more in its context with the verses on either side of it quoted. Just pay attention up here. Don't turn to your Bibles at this. This is 2 Chronicles 7.13. It says, If I shut up the sky and there, so that there is no rain, or if I order locusts to, to, to devour the land, or if I send an epidemic of sickness among my people... Then, if my people who bear my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land, 
Now my eyes will be open and my ears will pay attention to the prayers made in this place. I'm a guess, I guess I'm a little bit perplexed how if this Old Testament promise was supposedly abolished and nailed to the cross, that it is so widely preached upon and hoped for by modern believers who prefer to know themselves as New Testament Christians. But of course, since I know, and I think most of you who are listening know, that the Old Testament's not been abolished. Thus, we indeed can rely and rest upon this enduring message of hope in Second Chronicles. But notice the final verse of this three-verse passage I just read. It says that only after turning to the Lord in obedience, turning away from evil, will the Father's eyes be opened and His ears ready to pay attention to our prayers. See, this principle being spoken of here in Judges 6 speaks of great miracles in days gone by when God's people called upon him and due to their turning from their evil they list, he listened to them he listened to their prayers he acted and I maintain that the general weakness that we see today in the church is precisely as it was for Israel in the era of the judges it's not that we've abandoned God we insist in fact that we're worshipping God properly and following him sincerely But when our actions and traditions are held under the light of Holy Scripture, too much of what we follow turn out to be simply weak doctrines of men. Verse 14 returns us to the topic of identifying the angel of the Lord because it says in the Hebrew, Yehovah turned to him and said, Yehovah turned to him and said, Ah, the angel of the Lord is here unequivocally identified as Yehovah. Here's where the too rigidly applied doctrine of the Trinity runs into trouble. Those who adhere to the strictest sense of the Trinitarian view say that any and every physical apparition of God must be the Son. But nowhere is the Son ever called Yehovah in the Bible. Yehovah is either the Father or the unified Godhead, however you want to look at it. Nowhere is the Father identified as anything but Yehovah. He is given no other formal name, even though some titles and epithets like El Shaddai and Abba are used from time to time. Now, I've taught repeatedly that the angel of the Lord, Malach, Yehovah, is some other kind of manifestation of God than the Holy Spirit, the Son, or the Father in direct revelation. The Father is always referred to in the word as invisible and purely spirit. The angel of the Lord lands, in my view, outside of the Trinitarian view when taken, if you take it to its most rigid. It is mysterious. Yet here, the Malach Yehovah is definitely not an angel. 
nor is it the Spirit, nor is it the Son. Don't ask me to solve this mystery. I can't. But that doesn't mean that I have to accept a doctrine that doesn't fit the scriptural facts simply because it makes things very nice and tidy. Frankly, as the years pass, I'm growing more and more comfortable about not having all the answers to the deepest mysteries of God. In verse 14, God commissions Gideon as a shofet, a judge. He says that Gideon will rescue Israel from the hands of Midian. He tells Gideon that now, because of God's presence, Gideon has the strength to do what must be done. But Gideon is skeptical. And in verse 15, he responds that he has no means to save Israel. And even if he did, he says, I come from one of the poorest families in my tribe, Manasseh. And on top of that, I'm the youngest male in the household. So Gideon says he has no means, he has no money, and he has no status to be the deliverer of Israel. You know, he's not saying he won't answer the call. He just can't imagine how such an assignment is humanly possible. Answer? It's not. Gideon... God replies to Gideon's quite logical assessment that he will succeed because I, God, will be with you, Gideon. It will be God's doing and God's strength that envelops Gideon. Not Gideon's personal and human abilities. None of this is going to assure success. In fact, says the Lord, I will be with you so strongly that it will be as if the entire Midianite army and all their allies are just one man for you to deal with. Then in verse 17 begins the famous and often told story of Gideon's request for a sign from God. Gideon was still not entirely convinced of who he was dealing with. Was this traveler merely a godly man? Or was he a heavenly messenger of God? Or was it actually God? You know, I can completely identify with Gideon's dilemma. If God appeared right in front of me, I'm not sure I could accept it. I have no idea what God would look like in visible form. Oh, most would say, oh, that's easy. He looks just like Jesus. Fine, what did he look like? I mean, I'd first wonder if my imagination was playing tricks on me. Was the devil or my own evil inclination deceiving me? Was I having a dream? Was I hallucinating? It would be so unexpected and I'd feel so unworthy that I'd need some kind of proof that my limited mind and all my flesh-bound humanness could feel confident with and not just stand there bewildered. Yet in another way, Gideon knew what was happening was otherworldly. And so he responded in a rather knee-jerk way that people of that era would have. He wanted to bring an offering to this God or God apparition. Everyone knew that gods expected gifts. They expected burnt offerings. 
Naturally, he also responded by offering what was standard fare in Hebrew culture and what was at least loosely connected with the laws of Moses. Essentially, Gideon sort of combined the customary Middle Eastern hospitality of offering a guest some food along with showing a submissive respect to this God or this agent of God who was sitting there. Thus, the meal Gideon prepared for this single individual was enormous. It was an entire kid goat plus matzah made from a full ephah of flour, meaning it would have been about a 40-pound loaf of bread that he brought. That ought to do it. It's interesting that the Hebrew word used in these references here in uh, in the scriptures for this gift of food was mincha. Strictly speaking, according to the Torah, a mincha is the grain offering that accompanies an olah, a burnt offering. However, over time, the use of the term mincha also came to be to mean a rather generic, all-occasion, voluntarily voluntary gift, not necessarily even for a sacrifice. Usually, it was a food. In fact, Judaism to this day uses that term that way. Again, Gideon was acting largely within the everyday, customary, Middle Eastern understanding, at least as much as he was operating within the laws of Moses. It was understood that if you wanted something from a god, you first had to give him a gift. And Gideon wanted a sign. And so he offered the gift as the prerequisite in hopes of receiving that sign. You know, it's always amazing to me how the Lord will and His mercy and grace work within the beliefs and customs of humans in all of our various cultures and usually not rebuke us for our ignorance and what in the end is downright silliness sometimes. That Gideon thought he was offering a meal to literally be eaten as opposed to to it being a sacrifice is demonstrated when Gideon presents the food to the mysterious traveler. The Malach Yehoveh accepts the food, instructs him to take the meat and the matzah, lay them on a rock, then pour the meat broth out that Gideon had also provided over the top of it. It was about now that Gideon started to realize more fully that he was dealing with a non-human. Because at that moment, the angel of the Lord reached out with his staff he touched the offering and fire shot up out of the rock and burned it all up into smoke and ashes. That would pretty well do it for me. <laughs> but if that didn't freak, freak out Gideon enough, the angel of the Lord just suddenly evaporated right before his eyes. Now Gideon who witnessed a lot of sacrifices of all kinds to all kinds of gods, In his lifetime, nothing like this had ever happened before. It finally struck Gideon like a thunderbolt that this indeed was God. 
and he had appeared to him and talked with him and given him encouragement as well as instructions. And it scared Gideon out of his wits. He figured he wasn't even going to survive this encounter. Why would Gideon believe he was going to die? Exodus 33:18. Moses said, "I beg you to show me your glory." And God replied, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. And in your presence, I will pronounce the name of Adonai. Moreover, I will show favor to whomever I will. I will display mercy to whomever I will. But my face you cannot see. Because a human being cannot look at me and remain alive. Listen. This goes all the more to the core of my assertion that the angel of Yehovah is not a direct revelation as the most strictly defined of one of the three persons of the Trinity but as yet another of several legitimate manifestations of God that's given an entirely separate name and set of attributes. In this case, the Malach Yehovah, the angel of the Lord. It was the Father... Because the specific name of the Father, Yehovah, is quoted. But it wasn't the person of the Father, or else as the Father even told Moses, a human being cannot look at me and live. See, this understanding must have been a very strong tradition within the Hebrew community of Canaan. Just like in Christianity, we have certain Bible stories that are the most common among even our children. Jesus' birth in a manger, his death on a cross, Samson and the Philistines. Okay. So it was like this with the Israelites. Gideon knew that he was a dead man walking. But God assured him all was okay. First, as I just said, Gideon didn't actually view the actual person of the Father, but rather some manifestation. Okay. Rather, says Jehovah. Shalom is yours as a blessing from me. And remember that while we usually translate shalom as peace, it means so much more. It means well-being, it means abundance, it means harmony with God in his favor. This was positive assurance from God that Gideon was receiving. So Gideon built an altar on that spot and he called it Yehoveh Shalom. And it says that to this day, that altar remains. What the phrase to this day means is that the writer of Judges personally knew of that place in his time. And as I explained in the introduction to the book of Judges, it was a Hebrew writer or editor who pieced together the book of Judges from various documents and traditions. After all, the events of Judges spanned perhaps as much as 350 years. Understand also that this altar was not intended as some new place of sacrificing to Yehovah. It was just a memorial that commemorated this awesome revelation of God. But that very night, Gideon had yet another encounter with God. And we'll take that up next week.